This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. My name is Jess Hanam. And this is Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have lots to cover. We're going to start with some local news first. Then we're going to go to Saudi Arabia, probably Palestine if there's enough time, but there's a lot to cover today. But in perhaps, in my opinion, you could say arguably one of the most important First Amendment cases in the, in the Bay Area with national implications having to do with the attacks on free speech in the First Amendment at uh, San Francisco State. There was um, a dismissal, if you will, of a case that was put forth by Jewish students uh, represented by the Lawfare Project um, that was really striking in terms of the breadth and the depth of the ruling. And basically the ruling by Judge Oreck in San Francisco was to dismiss the case. Had this case gone forward, Jamal, and we've been reporting on this, you know, for weeks, this would have had a chilling effect on the First Amendment rights of academics, faculty, professors at any university, college, anywhere in the United States. You were there. So I want you to kind of break it down for the audience about this uh, really exciting moment for First Amendment rights. That's right, uh, Jess. And we've been talking about this for uh, several Long months. Time. And we've had uh, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, who is uh, named in the lawsuit uh, brought by the Lawfare uh, Project, which is a uh, shadowy organization that advocates, and I'm using this quote from their website, the use of the law as a weapon of war against critics of Israel. This is how they market they don't, they don't even themselves. hide it. They don't hide they it. They don't hide it. No. So the lawfare, the lawfare project brought this case uh, along with the law firm uh, also involved in, in, in this case, uh, aside from them, against San Francisco State University uh, in June 2017. Right. And the CSU, the California State University System, naming several people, including Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi, basically uh, it, alleging anti-Semitism, uh, alleging that uh, the campus has been made uh, unsafe. unsafe and created a hostile environment to Jewish students and pointing the fingers towards Arab and Muslim students and in particular GUPS, uh, which is uh, General Union of Palestine General students. General Union for Palestine students and Professor Rabab Abdelhadi. But let's let's remember this part of this goes back to when the mayor of occupied Jerusalem came to San Francisco State and as is the right of of all of us in this country to protest, you know, and and express our first amendment ability to speak against you know, whatever we wish, when his lecture was challenged. That's right. That was the That's foundation the, and of that, it. And, and this is what, actually, according to their complaint, uh, this incident and another incident triggered the lawsuit. One was because the students shouted, I guess, down or shouted out. Challenged. And challenged. Criticized. Near, near Barakat, who... 
if people remember something about him, he was the one advocating for the settlers to carry weapons and to really purge Palestinian residents of uh, Jerusalem. Off their lands. Off their lands. Them, yeah. And so just like in, on any other campus where we've seen hecklers, we've seen students, uh, you know, uh, complaining about uh, the guests, uh, as far as I know, no violence was committed. No. Uh, nothing. And basically they were louder than him. And then he basically couldn't finish his uh, lecture. Right. So th this is. And then the other incident is something about a student fair. Know your rights. Know your rights. Uh, where Hillel claims that that uh, they were banned from uh, participating. And by the way, they missed the deadline to sign up for it. So exactly. let's, let's just be clear and, about it. But they, but they wanted to, uh, you know, switch the debate into that they were singled out because they are a uh, Jewish organization. And then to counter this, and that's what actually the judge alluded to, there were other Jewish organizations president, uh, present including a Jewish Voice for Peace. Exactly, exactly. So, but their lawyer, which I'll get back to this later on, he said, well, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace, they are known for their hostile stance towards Israel, something like this. So now they were the kind of <laughs> defining who's a good Jew and who's a bad Jew, really. <laughs> this, is, this was by the measure of your allegiance to Israel. Isn't this that? Is, this is how I saw it, and I'm speaking about this That's now. That's outrageous. Not only as someone who has followed the, you know, like yourself, followed the case, and we've interviewed many people involved, but I've spent yesterday afternoon uh, standing outside uh, waiting for the case to happen from 12.30 until we were let inside the courtroom at 2 o'clock, taking an extra hour and watch the whole proceeding wow. from beginning to end. And so uh, let's go a little bit uh, to talk about the the what happened during that uh, no, I hearing. No, I think that's really important, Jamal, because, you know, this this case has been receiving national and international attention. Because, as you said, the Lawfare Project, just to put it into context uh, for our listeners— the, the pro-Israel groups like Lawfare, Sheldon Edelson's group, uh, David Horowitz, all of these kinds of uh, aggressive pro-Israel groups with support, I might add, by the ministries, uh, the government of Israel itself, have decided to invest tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to shut down pro-Palestine speech Palestine solidarity speech and any speech that advocates for BDS. So that's that's the big picture context. Rabab Abdel Hadi, Professor Abdel Hadi, occupies a space of big and significant prominence in the Palestine activists and academic community. She's well known. San Francisco State has a history, as you and I know, of uh, being very active on pro-Palestine activity as well as developing relationships. And the Lawfare Project singled Professor Abdul Hadi out in San Francisco State. So this is their attempt to use their vast economic resources and the law as a weapon. So the law becomes weaponized. So this was a big uh, test case, Jamal. 
This was a huge, huge test case. And what happened? You were there, man. That's right. So we have a summary, actually, uh, by one of the lawyers is that- uh, who was uh, present there. And, of course, my observations and everyone else's uh, observation. And also I have a sound bite that I recorded uh, from one of our lawyers later on. We'll play okay. it. But to summarize, because it's really very intricate and very detailed. Yes. But to, to summarize, number one, the case was dismissed. Which is huge. So the dismissals means that even if, even if 100% of the facts they alleged were true, which they are not, even then they have no case. Wait, and, the, know, judge, so the judge threw out the case. He, well, he dismissed the case, but he left an opening to, to say or saying, now go... You know, and bring me facts. Bring me facts <laughs> and file it again with all these questions that I have for you. So in you know, from the get-go, Judge Oreck, he basically described the case as weak, you know. He thought their complaint was a mess and was annoyed by how they threw out allegations dating back to 1973. So he was like, why are you bringing me these citations? He mentioned it several times. He himself uh, pointed to the presence of JVP at the Know Your Rights Fair that you've mentioned. Uh, you know, he, he, he's like, what about that? You, you're saying, you know, Hillel was excluded because it's a Jewish organization. What about these other Jewish organizations? For example, uh, the JVP, the Jewish Voice for Peace. And they were kind of like, oh, taken aback by this because, you know, you're making a false claim saying that you're the, you know, you were thrown out because you are a Jewish organization when there are other Jewish and legitimate Jewish organizations. Absolutely. And uh, so so that's, I think, was a... um, very important uh, detail. He also opened the, his, uh, you know, the opening remarks by describing why they have no case. It was like, <laughs> like we were like waiting for him. It was like kind of like, well, you know, I reviewed the case, but I can tell you the way it stands or the way your complaint is written or, or filed I can tell you, most likely, I'm going to be dismissing. So wow. we knew, like, from the beginning wow. that, uh, you know, and then he he went into the weaknesses in their legal what, theory. What, what were the weaknesses? So uh, there is no uh, clear or uh, clearly no violation uh, of plaintiff's free speech rights with regard to the Barakat event, you know, because they also cited uh, the First Amendment and their free right. speech and you know, hecklers b- getting getting shouted at. Welcome to uh, the to United States. Welcome man. to America. Welcome. You know, you, you're going to get presi- heckled. Presidents gets gets heckled. And it's okay. Why 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 does this make a near Barakat special to come all the way? He's not even a U.S. citizen to come from abroad, from a country where many of the students view it as an apartheid country. I mean, the students who went there, like, let's say, Palestinian students, Arab students, do they view Israel like African Americans viewed apartheid South Africa? Exactly. So so that was one of the points. The plaintiffs didn't even say that the university or Dr. Abdul Hadi intended to discriminate. discriminate. They have to show intent. Intent, right. Okay, so, so that was absent. The plaintiffs have no equal protection claim under the 14th Amendment requires equal protection under the law because they didn't allege that other groups, that's it, 
are treated differently than Jewish students. Fact that JVP participated in the KY fair, know your right fair, destroys equal protection theory. That killed them. I, I think that actually was key. Then there was, you know, and I'm glad this was uh, kind of pointed out by one of the attorneys. There is the Title uh, Four claim, right, uh, which requires showing either direct discrimination or that the university acted with deliberate indifference to a hostile environment. The plaintiffs didn't allege facts that, if true, would show either one. Wow. So, so these were the key. This is something that was summi- summarized by the attorneys uh, present there. But, but, but essentially, the Judge Oreck shut them down. Yeah. And now, what I witnessed, yeah, what did unless you see? I was watching a whole different movie. No, what did you see? But I know many people saw that. The plaintiff's attorneys did poorly answering the judge's questions. Every time he asked them a specific thing, something specific about either uh, from a legal standing point or, or about from the fact. Constitution, whatever, they'll go on and say, well, our, our students feel, you know, afraid to be on campus, and they refer to the environment after the election of uh, <laughs> Trump here <laughs> and, and things like this that have no bearing on the case. On the case Absolutely. itself, yes, it's all innuendos and this and that. But then when he, he asked, okay, you said someone uh, felt threatened. And he asked, well, by whom or when? Do you have ed- evidence? Who's that person? All these things, uh, they were just very kind of ambiguous ab- with, with, their, with their answers. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, watching them, Watching, uh, do you think they weren't prepared, or they're just not that good? Or I the, think the I case think is not that I, good. I I I think well, the one one point I also want to talk about, but I think number one, the case is full of false claims, and that's what the judge saw. Yeah, the judge saw, and this is what the attorneys saw. So they were building this whole case on lies. It's true and innuendo and innuendos. You know, the, the false claim, one, like very important, Jewish students excluded. They use the word Jewish students excluded from, from the KY fair. Fact is Jewish students attended the fair and engaged with the tables, including Hillel members, representatives. It, it, it just they didn't have the table. JVP had a table because they applied for that table on time. On time, exactly. False claim, the KY fair intentionally excluded Jewish students based on religion. Fact, the KY fair investigation concluded there was an investigation, there was no religious discrimination, only viewpoint, and Jewish students were not excluded at all. False claim, Hillel is not a pro-Israel group. They were like kind of presenting Hillel as not a pro-Israel group. They said, "What?" And and this is where it came. But from because what? They, because they were saying, they were saying, you know, we don't represent Israel. We represent Jewish who, students here. Who funds you? But JVP, <laughs> they're hostile to Israel. So you see, you know, like this is how they played it. And uh, Hillel is not pro-Israel. Fact, Hillel has bylaws requirements that no anti-BDS speakers are allowed. The requirement is enforced by threat of litigation against the senders. So another false claim wow. that uh, Dr. Abdul Hadi organized the KY fair. 
the fact that she had nothing to do with organizing the KY Fair and wasn't even on campus. On that day. On that day. She, she was, was actually out of the country. She was out of the country or out of town at, at, at least, but she wasn't even on the campus, and they tried to present her as the gang leader of the whole thing. I mean, you know, this is they, they had so many weaknesses in the case. They had so many lies, and I felt at one point that their attorney was making things up. He was making things up. The more the judge, and the judge, I have to commend him, he was calm, he was collected, like what you would expect out of a fair judge, asking specific questions, legal questions. And then attorney was like going all over the place, making, when, when he w- w- kind of like put him in a corner, and he's like, he starts citing things that has had no relevance on the case and saying, oh, poor me, poor me, poor me, that kind of thing. This didn't work in Judge Oryx court thank god but uh, as i said early on that they have the opportunity he didn't you know want to slam the the door completely and now they have to go back they have to go back and they have to uh you know resubmit the case if they want to pursue it the other thing the lawfare project the law firm gosh what's their name uh, will come back to me that they had presenting. They it's a huge law firm. Oh, Winston. Winston, yeah. Yeah. It employs nineteen hundred lawyers. It's one of the biggest in the country. Yeah. They had almost twenty lawyers sitting in the courtroom. There was one or two. Two of their lawyers were speaking in front of the judge, and maybe another fifteen lawyers or more just sitting there, just sitting watching. You know, they 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 just were there and. Uh, I just show you the power. So this was really a big, big slap uh, in their face. And let me tell you something about, you know, you got me started. Uh, just no, I'm, about I, I, I just uh, go for uh, it. Uh, you know, this is something about the lawfare uh, project. People don't know about it. In 2016, uh, one of their founders, Brooke Goldstein, if not the founder, stressed that, and I'm quoting her, there is no such thing as a Palestinian person. This is something that she said. She she said there's yeah, no... Yeah, she still thinks it's, it's the 60s when Golda Meir said this when there was uh, no media around, not, no, not too much uh, satellite TV and internet to research things. And questioned why the word Palestinian is even used, yet they were referring to Palestinians left and right. <laughs> that was the joke for me. I wanted, like, every time I'm sitting in the court... Your Honor! I wanted to raise my hand. Your Honor! But they, you know, their founder says we don't exist. And left and right, they're and accusing... And why are you suing us? They're accusing Palestinian students. They're accusing gobs. They're accusing, you know, all these things. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're claiming, you know, law firm project claimed that pro-Palestine sentiments on campus had created a hostile environment for Jewish students. This is basically... Uh, what they wanted to do. But basically, at the end of the day, I think they weren't expecting that that there will be a good legal argument about their bogus and weak case. And we had good representation and you had a wise judge in front of them. And they thought basically, let's wing it, throw any, slap them with anything that will stick 
nothing drag worked. them drag them down to court scare San Francisco State University scare their administration use certain uh, buzzwords you know because no one wants to be an I'm a, you know we, we stand against anti-semitism and nobody wants to be called an anti-semite and you can point the finger towards some of the students and 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 a professor and tell them that they are anti-semitic and they're going to be silent but you know what Jamal I think this is really a huge huge watershed moment uh, for pro-palestine activism because using the law to weaponize the law and to weaponize lawsuits like this and to have such a high-profile case with the support of one of the largest law firms in the country, just be humiliated. I mean, basically, Jamal, what this judge did is humiliate not just the lawyers, but the merits of the filing. The merits of the case were summarily dismissed. The judge said, based on what you have filed— there is no basis for a lawsuit. Yeah, go back he, to square one. He was kind enough, I think, to say, well, if you show me facts, if you show me the law, I may, I may reconsider. But basically, this was a slapdown to the Lawfare Project. It was a slapdown by <clears throat> these legal anti-First Amendment you know, activists with what we call the Palestine exception, which is it's okay to have First Amendment rights as long as you're as long as you're not Palestinian. This whole this whole uh, aspect of the Lawfare Project got summarily dismissed. This is huge. I think. I think this is a huge. It's huge. Win. And I'm going to play a soundbite by uh, Who's one of uh, Dr. Rabab Abdelhadi's uh, attorneys, Benam. Uh, Garagosli. This is right after the case. Uh, he was briefing uh, because actually it was uh, a full uh, courthouse, just and so many. Oh, people, really? Yeah, many people weren't allowed to come in, so he came out to brief to brief everyone about the outcome. And this is this is uh, a quick sound bite. This is uh, he. He's referring about the the outcome and. And if the lawfare project was going to uh, submit another uh, case, and and this is his answer another to this. opportunity to fix, I guess you could call it, their lawsuit and try to bring it again. The problem is, is that you can't fix something that is inherently broken before it even gets out of the gate. So I am happy with this outcome. Some people were hoping perhaps that it would be granted without leave to amend, that everything would stop here. I'm happy with this because they wanted an open war. And now we're going to give them an open war. And we're going to show them that if they want to open another front here in this courthouse, we're going to beat them here. If they want to open up a front on the campus, we'll beat them there as well. We'll beat them on every single front because their entire movement is based on a lie. And our movement is based on truth. And history has shown that eventually the truth prevails. If people are resilient, if they fight, if they choose to resist, they will eventually prevail. The truth eventually prevails in the end. If people are willing and find it important enough to fight for that truth. If not, go home and argue on Facebook. Wow. The truth always prevails. Jamal, that's very powerful. And that... That speaks volumes for where we are in this country. I mean, putting this in the context of the election results, for example, on Tuesday night, 
that show that maybe there are people still in this country who believe, you know, in civic responsibility, the law, wanting to change things, civic engagement. People are not happy with this particular kind of uh, notion that you can attack people just because you have a lot of money. I mean, that's basically what they're doing, Jamal. They don't have facts on their side. They don't have truth on their side. What they do have is just a lot of money. And they have been able to bludgeon, beat, and intimidate us and pro-Palestine activists for decades. And now justice has been served. Justice has been served. This is round one. They there will be a round two. They received a big slap on the face and to be continued. No, I think this will be continued. Knowing the Lawfare Project, they're not going to just walk away with their tails between their legs. Well, they have money. They have money. And I think you and I were joking about this before, but they could bring Alan Dershowitz in to, uh, to argue, you know, round two. The reason we say that half jokingly, half truthfully is because when you don't have the facts on your side or the truth on your side, you bring in a high-profile person to argue persuasively, you know, to the weight of a personality, which is in the rule of law and in our judicial system, you know, someone's personality is not supposed to have any weight. This judge actually seemed really quite extraordinarily open, fair, and did what judges are supposed to do, judge the facts. He seems to have done a really good job. That's right, Jess. We're going to take a a short uh, musical break, and when we come back, we're going to go to Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk about... What the heck is going on in Saudi Arabia? And then after that, we're going to have a live report from Washington, D.C. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk on KPOO in San Francisco, 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. So, Jamal, we've been getting a lot of questions about Saudi Arabia. You know, because of all the the, the kind of uh, air gets sucked out of the room because of Trump and North Korea and everything like, like that, and we tend to miss what would typically be very large, significant events outside of Trump, and there is a very large, significant series of events that are going on in Saudi Arabia. Let's just break it down a little bit and talk about it. In the span of less than a week, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is the son of the king, has basically uh, imprisoned uh, large members of the Saudi royal family. The, to call it a prison is kind of ironic. because I'd like to be imprisoned in, in the, the Ritz-Carlton. Ritz- <laughs> Car- <laughs> but it's basically, <laughs> basically shut down large members of the royal family. That's number one. Number two, there was a missile fired from Yemen into the capital of Riyadh. There is a big palace intrigue going on in Riyadh right now, which is the, the seat, the, the kind of royal seat for the, for, the, uh, for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And it seems like the crown prince is not only engaging in a power grab, but is doing something that is radically transforming uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I want to say one more thing that they did last week, which was very interesting. They took away the right of the sheikhs to summarily arrest somebody on their own. Mm-hmm. So sheikhs now 
can no longer just go, you know, they're like the religious police. You know, they can't just go and arrest you now. They can well, make a complaint, but the police have to arrest yeah, you. Yeah, I'll take it even further. Yeah. What they had for those uh, French Revolution buffs, <laughs> they had like the lettre de cachet. Yeah, yeah. This is where all the noblemen had a letter from the king. Sparing them. Not sparing them, no. They, they couldn't they get had, arrested. They, no, they had a letter. Yeah. Basically, you present this letter. I don't like you, just right. and I'll arrest you. Yeah. So they had basically the carte blanche. So they call it lettre de cachet, which, which translates literally the letter to make you disappear, cachet, to, to hide you. And you ended up in the Bastille. Right. So if I had a problem with you. You brought out I'm, your letter. I brought out this letter and I can call on the sheriff or on any uh, of the guards and say, make this guy disappear. They'll take you to the Bastille. Never heard of ever again. And those princes, and there is more than a thousand of them running around. If you had in Saudi Arabia, a bumper, uh, a fender, what do you call it? Fender, fender bender. Fender bender with one of them. You'd go to jail. You'd go to jail. And they take even, your car. Even, even if they're at fault. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. So they had that. So, so there is, you know, now they're kind of, they're, they're taking that privilege, which is really, of course, it is big for the population, but this is one of the many privileges. But both of the allegations, and, and there's a major connection. There's most of the allegations they're hitting them with uh, concern fra- defrauding the government. These guys, uh, not that there is a tax system, they never contribute to the economy. They, you know, you, you, you could be bequeathed the car, you know, like forever for the rest of your life to be the car. Uh, dealership owner That's for right. Ford, Ford Motors. That's Just right. because your last name is from you're from the house of Saud. That's it. You are you own all the car dealerships for Ford Motor. This person owns all the supermarkets. This, you know, buildings, real estate, the whole wealth of the government, and most of this money. Do you know where it sits? It sits in offshore accounts in offshore. Bermuda. No, not even this. Even that probably be. You know, they actually. Dubai? In, in, no, no, no. Actually, they invested in the in the military-industrial complex of the United States and the UK. Right. Every year, billions of dollars is spent on that. It's also invested in offshore, con- you know, other countries, Switzerland. Uh, they have uh, in London. They own the most expensive apartment buildings. The Brits themselves they can't afford living in London in certain neighborhoods because they're owned by the Saudi sheikhs. Yeah. So, so uh, they're not uh, reinvesting the money in the country except to make money, and then the profits are taking them outside the country. So there is a lot of things, but they're also saying that they are engaged in illegal activities, etc., embezzlement, all, ki- all kinds of things. They're alleging, by the way, just $100 billion. But uh, my feeling, I mean, this has been going on since the inception of Saudi Arabia. Since the House of Saud. They run it as a family business, except the family wasn't this big. So before, it wasn't a big family. It, it hasn't grown to a thousand. So, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to take people, maybe c- confuse our subjects, taking them back to... Uh, you know, when Saudi Arabia at the time, it was 19, the, Hash, it was 19, the Hashemites, 17, and the Hashemites were basically 
in the forefront. And there was a coup because the House of Saud decided to cooperate and collaborate with the British government more than the Hashemites. And the Hashemites ended up in Jordan and ended up in Syria and ended up in Iraq. But that's, a, you know, you could, uh, this is part of the history. And they were backed by the British government. And hence, the House of Saud came, got rid of the Hashemites, and now you have one family in control of this country. This country that was just, where oil just had recently been discovered in it. I mean, they weren't, they, they didn't even know. I mean, most of these people were illiterate. They didn't know how to spell their own names. And they were sitting on oil wells, billions and billions of dollars worth of black gold. And of course, the Brits and their allies, the Americans and everybody else, they knew, uh, you know, Chevron knew, Exxon knew, British uh, Petroleum, Petroleum knew, everybody knew. So they supported them. They provided them with protection. You know, and why I'm talking about protection? Because the circle, this comes to a full circle with Donald Trump's last visit. Donald Trump's last visits and coming back from Saudi Arabia with a promise of $400 billion. Worth of contracts. That's, that's protection money. It is. This is protection money in the region where we've seen many revolutions. We've seen what happened in Tunisia. We've seen what's happened in Iraq because, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein didn't want to play along. Syria. We've seen what happened in Syria, Libya, etc. And basically, if you go, this is what drives me crazy. If people want to know what Donald Trump is doing today, just watch video. Now we have the Internet. We have TV. Watch videos of what he was saying before. That's right. He was always saying, you know, there's so all these, you know, I like them in the Gulf. I like him. I like them. I like them. You know, he was, you know, I have golf courses there. I have this. But, you know, they have to pay us because we're protecting them. Look at that. I he mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He said this m on more than one occasion. Because it's true. So he went back and said, hey, 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 wait a minute. You know, brought Ivanka and we had the whole show and da, 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 da. And Ivanka got money for her foundation from them. We have dying children in Yemen, but that's okay. We write a $100 million check for Ivanka. We write $400 billion for the United States. We write, you know, billions of dollars to the U uh, to British uh, uh, security firms and whatever. And people are dying all over the Middle East, including Yemen, because of Saudi Arabia and starvation and we have now diseases returning to Yemen that were eradicated decades ago and I think this is all connected of course so now Salman this is again going back to Salman and, and, and Saudi Arabia you know of course this is a kingdom despot whatever no democracy and we can talk a lot about it but he had a system they had a system going the system of passing the crown uh, was between the brothers. It kind of crisscrossed from one brother to the other. Never passed down to a, to a son. To a son. So Salman comes, I think it was less than two months or three months after he came. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, I'll check my dates. I don't want to give you, but anyway, it didn't take him long. And then he said, hey, wait a minute. Calls, calls basically. His favorite son. No, no, no. He first calls the crown prince. So he calls the crown prince. This is the crown prince. They agreed. There is the shura. They agreed that he's next in line because, you know, they crisscross. And he said to him, you know, you have to resign. He made up something. It just came. Oh, you know, he's getting old. He's sick. He's that. 
they put the be- their best face on it, but you could see he was actually even surprised and he had to make a statement. I watched it in Arabic on Saudi TV and he said, you know, we have to pass the, the baton and we wish him the good luck. But, you know, I'm sure uh, five minutes before that he had a gun to his head, <laughs> you know, or saying, you know, we're going to maybe not a gun, maybe a sword saying we're going to behead all of, all of you and all your family and your children, grandchildren, if you don't make that statement. But anyway, all of a sudden the crown prince who has who has been waiting for many years for his turn, they Go told on. him, gone. My son is going to be there. And by the way, his son, he's not even the eldest. No, he's not. He's his favorite son, but not the eldest. He's, he's his favorite. And he's just, okay, I'm going to pass it to my son. I'm not going to pass it to my brothers. We're not going to pass it. This is how we, you know, we're from the house. We're not going to do that. And so there is, there, since that day, something has been fermenting within the kingdom. All these princes, some of them are loyal to Mukren. This right. is the Mukren the f- people. Right, the former crown prince. And the former crown prince. Some of them were, you know, the, the brothers and, and children of King Fad. Right. You know, like, and, and uh, someone had a great relations like Faisal, for example, who were all these things. I think now what happened, you know, is a purging because the Saudi intelligence with assistance of other intelligence agencies, I am sure the CIA, the Mossad, you name it, all have been involved because, you know, for example, Prince Faisal, he's flying from town to town. He's one day in London. You know, he has shares that uh, he all owns big, share, uh, big, large shares at, uh, you know, Citibank and others. They heard some rumors that they weren't happy right. with these changes. So that's the internal coup that happened. But also I was like thinking about it. I said, hmm, you know, this guy, uh, King Salman, is a very conniving kind of king. And he was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to be paying $400 billion. I better get my money. So you guys, you know, you've defrauded your government. I am sure he's going to now freeze and he's going to freeze their assets. And some of that money will come to pay the United States. And to and then, if, here's who, who tweets praising Donald Trump, King Salman? Donald he Trump. He tweets just like other tweets saying, you know, he he thinks he's doing the right thing. He's sure he's doing the right thing. Well, let me just say a few things, Jamal, because we're going to be covering this story for a long time. The Crown Prince has just been made head of security. The Crown Prince has just been made chief of the armed forces. The Crown Prince, prior to that, was the chief. You know, was the former minister of finance and, and, and things of that sort. We're seeing a consolidation of power, which is very, very significant. Here's what I think is going to happen, unfortunately. This is not going to go quietly into the night. And what I worry about is a coup d'etat of some kind within the Saudi monarchy. And if the Saudi monarchy fragments in any way, boy, are we going to have problems. Well, this is the first coup d'etat, by the way. I mean— Internal coup d'etat and and, and will be a counter coup d'etat. That's what I think, because these individuals are not going to go quietly. We're going to take a short musical break, Jamal. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Arab Talk correspondent Phil Pasquini, live from D.C. So stay tuned. This is Arab Talk on KPOO. We'll be right back. Well, 
Welcome back. This is Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We're going now live to Arab Talk reporter in Washington, D.C., Phil Pasquini. Uh, welcome to Arab Talk, uh, Phil. Uh, thank you, Jamal. It's always good well, to be Phil, on. Well, there, there's, uh, Phil, there's a lot to speak with you about. Um, we've had very significant... Um, Election results just in the last, you know, 48 hours. There's been a right. rather significant repudiation of Trumpism and Trump doctrine. It seems like the Republicans got a bit of a smackdown. Um, uh, it was yeah, just getting a taste of reality. I, mean, I just saw this from all breaking news. Uh, Trump's senatorial candidate that he came out with great love and admiration, uh, Roy Moore, <laughs> just got accused of you know, abusing, uh, sexually abusing right. women underage. What right. the heck is going on in Washington, D.C. right now, Phil? It must be really crazy. Well, the chickens are coming home to roost, and some of the people in the part, on the Democratic side have said not to take, you know, this uh, with uh, a grain of salt and think this is going to be the wave of the future, that they have to push and work even harder to make sure that this momentum that's building continues. And I think it's a really good indictment of the fact that, uh, as you said, Trumpism is becoming uh, more realistic to a lot of people and understanding what the full extent of it is, and not only nationally but internationally. There's a lot of things going on internationally that uh, are affected. And as, as you probably saw his speech to China, yeah. where he complimented the Chinese, and you know, this is a guy who ran the Chinese into the ground for so long. Uh, it, you know, this chameleon thing. I remember seeing octopus under the Red Sea as it moved across the surface of a wall and continually changed colors as it moved, depending on what the background was. You see the same sort of political spectrum now coming from him and, and from many members of his party. And, of course, that was a real shock today, uh, the disclosure about uh, underage sex uh, with this character. So um, I think, you know, people's eyes are beginning to open up, it kind of coming out of this daze of being shocked by this, understanding the reality of it. You might want to su summarize the story to, to, for our listeners uh, because it's such a new story. Well, um, there are allegations, and several young ladies have come out now and said that when they were quite young, I think the age was around 14, 14 to uh, 16, that he had yeah. made right, he had made sexual advances towards them, uh, doing very inappropriate things. So uh, this is, you know, once again, family values kind of uh, <laughs> drumbeat, and then turning around and destroying all of that uh, in the past. So we're seeing, as you know, we're seeing more and more and more of this from all different walks of life, uh, much like we're seeing more carnage with guns. Every time there's a shooting now, it's the worst of, and then there's a new category. Um, so the momentum and the tempo of this is building really radically. I've spent time up on the Hill, um, was up today for a DACA a demonstration because today is the National Day of Action for young people um, in the United We Dream cause. Uh, it was called, called Operation Dream Act, where young people are going up to Capitol Hill talking to their representatives one-on-one. -on -one. It's about 750 kids, probably, uh, that went up there who were disappointed they, they face being deported. And so you have, you know, these sexual um, uh, harassment things going on. You've got people who are, are forcibly going to be deported. You've got the, uh, the Turkish uh, foreign minister, Yildirim, was here 
uh, for a two-day visit with Pence. There's a lot of tension between the Kurds and the Turks and the Turks in the U.S. This is now the worst situation we've been in. The only uh, ray of light I can put on that is most of the people the day before were at the Apple store in Georgetown. So it seems like Apple diplomacy has more strength than uh, the Russian counterpart. <laughs> so well, it's fa- just a myriad of activities. Yeah, this week. and it and it seems like part of the part of the discourse, and uh, maybe you could just give us your sense of the your finger on the pulse is that it's so chaotic, it's so it unwieldy. There's so many right. kind of breaking stories. I mean, one day of news in Washington D.C was like a month or two months worth of news before. Um, The perception of U.S. kind of stability in the world is plummeting. Uh, The State Department is being decimated, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, with, you know, key, you know, uh, long-term, you know, State Department officials just being summarily dismissed. I mean, it it has the feel of of What? Right. That's that's agency wide. I mean, people who have been career people. I just heard today that one of the main people um, who was an expert in healthcare mm-hmm. uh, failed with 30 years experience in the, the in a national healthcare individual. And so this is being repeated in all the departments. People are either leaving because of the disgust of the direction things are going in, or the chaotic nature that they're in. And so we're losing people who are in government, who are experts in areas, who are now bailing and going into think tanks or into private industry and working. They have great, you know, resources that they can make available. Respective to the State Department, most of the things that are going on there are being handled by staff. A lot of career people have left, as you said. Uh, The direction, nobody knows where it's going. The big problem for international uh, scene is that we now appear to be somebody who can't be relied on. We can't be a partner in anything because nobody understands, nor do we, uh, what our foreign policy is, where we're going. There are appointments for ambassadors that haven't been filled. Um, Rex Tillerson seems to want to run the department by himself as his own personal fiefdom. You can't possibly do that. Government is too complicated and too complex. Um, last week I was able to cover uh, Manafort when he left uh, courthouse after the first day after the indictment. And, you know, there, there's another whole fiasco right there that's going on. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned earlier... DACA, but, uh, you know, make right. me, it made me think how, uh, you know, there was a period and still ongoing the vilification of uh, uh, those uh, young uh, people and uh, immig- right. immigrants, you know, uh, coming to this country, etc., <laughs> committing mm-hmm. crimes and so forth. And, and then, sadly, we had that uh, incident in Texas. And mm-hmm. I was uh, watching a little bit of a debate, at least uh, on TV, uh, people comparing how Trump uh, reacted every time a horrific incident like this happened, how he reacted when this uh, uh, mass murder, which I call it actually terrorism in Texas, happened. It is terrorism, v- yeah. Versus the, 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 the criminal or the terrorist from Uzbekistan you know, uh, and it's totally different. Like, you know, this is a terrorist, uh, he's an animal, et cetera, et cetera. But then he had a measured response towards, you know, this guy who actually, sadly, he, even though he was court-martialed, he was a veteran. Right. And he's an American. And and it's Americans killing Americans in larger numbers than all the terrorist 
activities that have occurred since 9-11. That was the worst incident. Mm-hmm. Now we have a shooting, which is the worst incident of killing of people in a place of worship, which is parallel, not in terms of scale, but in terms of the number of lives that were lost and the effect on people's residual effect. And we don't see that. It's not labeled as terrorism. This is what Homeland Security is supposed to be all about, to protect us from those kinds of things. Has this moved the, at least the discussion about gun control, one iota, that, you know, perhaps we should re-evaluate having no. machine guns, semi-automatic right. weapons in the hands of individuals? You think it would, and, and I, I honestly gave up personally after uh, the elementary school killings. Um, oh, Sandy Hook, yeah. Uh, yeah, Sandy Hook. I mean, here there are 20 children murdered by a kid with an automatic weapon, and we did nothing about it. And then the discussion then, like now, is, well, let's wait until things calm down. Let's have respect for the families of those that were killed. This is a false narrative. The reality is, and I photographed a woman and did a story on uh, my News Inc. site, a woman holding a sign in front of the White House who was marching around that said, military-style weapons have no place on our street. And this is by a group uh, called We the People um, for Sensible Gun Control. They're not opposed to the Second Amendment. They want to make sure that the laws that we have in place are enforced. And then we go beyond that and start, as you said, a discussion about what is proper and appropriate in society today. And one of the points they make poignantly is that it's harder to buy Sudafed than it is to go down and buy a gun and ammunition. That's right. And, and, and there's and something wrong in that, you know. There's definitely something wrong. And in, in, a, in an ironic and bizarre way, I watched uh, Jess uh, and Phil Donald Trump on TV when he had uh, the press conference with the Prime Minister of Japan. You're right. And he was like uh-huh. saying, like, oh, this happens like everywhere. And he's in a country where they have zero murder because of guns in that country. Right. Zero. Right. And he was like, this, exactly. this, this type exactly. of thing happens everywhere in the world. I mean, right. what planet does he live on? Right. And the White House now is an armed camp. You yeah, have, we've been have, speaking. Uh, Secret uh, w- Service walking around with. Right. Uh, that's the voice of Phil Pasquini, Arab Talk correspondent and reporter, live from Washington, D.C. Phil, what website can people go to uh, see your posts? Uh, I've been putting posting things on uh, News Inc. That's N-U-Z-E dot I-N-K on Facebook. And, that's, and they can and, look under Phil Pasquini? Uh, just under News Inc. and it'll come up. It'll come up. Well, Phil, we always appreciate your live reporting from D.C. I'm sure, sure, I'm sure we're going to have you back. Stay safe over there and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Well, Jamal, we're coming to another end of Arab Talk. We want you to send us your comments to ArabTalk at KPOO.com. Remember, we're in our month, our fundraising drive, Jamal. You know that. So we want people to go to the KPOO.com website. Make a do- donation. We're a community-supported radio station. You'll never get reporting like this anywhere else. Never. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.